Nate, we need to remove about three rows from the back so that people move up here. I feel like I'm preaching to a... Thank you. That's all, that's all, that's, that's all I needed. That's all I was asking for right there. Appreciate that. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. How are you? It's a little humid outside, but that is the promise of rain, I understand. And uh, we've had lots of rain, but you know what? I love rain. So I'm excited about today and more rain. How about you? Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect maybe those who are planning on going to the lake. But um, sorry, I like rain. I also like words. Any here, any here word fiends, crossword puzzles, all that word games? I love words. Words are interesting in English because words can change meanings. We're human. We love to play with words in creative ways. And, and in the process, the words that we use can change what they mean from what they originally meant. Nate and I were talking, it's been a couple months now, and he used the word egregious. And I'm like, that's a really good word. And I looked it up, and interestingly enough, we use the word egregious today to mean really bad. But when it was first introduced to the English language, it meant really good. Now, that's a big change. Maybe you think of the word awful. Awful, oh, that's just awful. But originally, awful meant full of awe. It was awesome. There's another word, naughty. Maybe you've told your kids, don't be naughty. Now, today, naughty means bad, don't be bad. But when it was first introduced, it simply mean, meant that you had not, you had nothing. You were very, very poor if you were naughty. In fact, there are very few words that haven't changed their meaning in some sense over the last several thousand years of the English language. But one of those words that somehow has managed to maintain its original meaning is the word grace. Grace and its variations have managed somehow, through the twists and turns of time, to maintain this central idea of, of receiving unexpected and undeserved favor. We use grace and its forms all the time. Maybe tonight or today after church you'll go to dinner and you'll have a meal. And before you eat the meal, you will say grace, acknowledging God's graceful provision. We are grateful, that's another variation of grace, for someone's kindness. We appreciate our friends being gracious to host us for a gathering. Maybe you leave a gratuity or you congratulate someone, or you are gratified. All of those are variations on this idea of grace. Now, in a culture that sort of rushes to judgment and um, condemnation, this idea of acknowledging unexpected and undeserved favor is a little bit radical, as radical today as it was in Jesus' time, one of the most radical stories of grace that Jesus tells is the story of a child who disrespects, mistreats, and abandons his parent, and yet even after all of that, the parent continues to shower love on this child. 
We know the story as the prodigal son, and you probably know the story. But just to remind ourselves of the salient points, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 15, you can. We'll be going through it real quick, and you can sort of follow along and see where I get the details right or where I fudge a little bit. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fudge if I don't have to. And I don't have to. So the story stands on its own. A son asked his father for his share of the inheritance. We're told there are two sons. Deuteronomy tells how to distribute inheritance uh, to, to, uh, to parents. And parents then look at the Old Testament laws and say, oh, the first son gets double what the other children will receive. And so the first son will receive twice as much as the second son. But in this story, that means, therefore, that the father has to divest his holdings, his property, his income, his business by a third. And I don't know what that would mean for your income or your property or your business or your uh, family's well-being if you had to lose a third of it, but it probably would affect you pretty deeply. And for the son to ask this of his father, it's, it's very, very disrespectful, deeply dishonoring, not only to his father, but to all the people that his father has and employs. He says he has servants later in the story, and so how are those families affected by his father selling off portions of his property? It impacts not just him, but people around him. I would be, I would be upset. I would feel dishonored. I would feel disrespected. But instead of throwing his son out, the father does this. He sells off a third of his property, and then hands the cash over to this son. And what does the son do with it? Well, we know the story. He doesn't invest it wisely. The scriptures say he squanders it in wild living. And soon he's out of money, he's out of friends, he's got to get a job, and the only job available to him is slopping pigs. Have anyone ever slopped pigs before? That is not a job that you hope your child aspires to. (laughs) He's slopping pigs and he's hungry and he's looking at the food scraps in the pig slop and he's thinking, "Ah, that looks good. He says, I've done something stupid with my life. He goes, my father's servants eat better than this. Now, to Jesus, as he's telling this story, his listeners might have thought to himself, well, He got what he deserved. Karma. You know how that works. But then the story gets even more interesting. You see, the the boy humbly decides to go home and beg for a job on his father's farm, just as a servant. He has no expectation of anything beyond just being a servant, maybe being such a low servant, sort of an out-of-the-way place that he'll not really have to run into his father much at all. He doesn't want to do that to his dad. It's embarrassing for both of them. So, so he goes thinking, I can at least get a job, stay out of, stay out of sight, uh, but at least have something to eat. So imagine his surprise as he walks to his father's farm. As he gets closer, he sees a figure run out of the house and across the yard, and then through the field. And as he sees him running through the field, he recognizes that it's his own father. 
The father he disowned and disrespected and dishonored, and it's his father coming to, to chase him away, to say, get out of here, I never want to see you again, to throw dirt clods at him. And, but no, he, he hears his father calling his name. His father is weeping and running and calling his name, and so the boy's like, I don't know what's going on here, but he starts walking faster too, and then he starts running, and pretty soon they meet there on that dusty road, and they fall, to e fall into each other's arms, weeping shaking, and the son overwhelmed says, Father, I have done a terrible thing. I have become a terrible, terrible person. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Father takes him by the arm and takes him not to the servants' quarters, but back into the house, and he brings new clothes and puts new shoes on him, and he puts a ring on his finger, and the clothes and shoes symbolize the fact that he's not a servant. He's a son, but the ring, the ring is something special. I think we have a picture of the type of ring that the father might have given him. So this is called a signet ring. And signet rings symbolize authority. Keep that in mind. When the father places this ring on the hand of his son, he not only welcomes him back as a son, but he welcomes him back to the responsibility and the authority that he had before. After everything that ungrateful son has done, after every irresponsible thing that he has, he has gone through, after all the sorrow and agony he has put his father through, putting that ring on his son's finger is a beautiful picture of the father's grace. Today, we're talking about grace. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we um, speak of your grace, we want to not just have it be the song that we sing, but the story that we tell through our lives um, and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the very first descriptions that God gives of himself, this is after um, he has delivered the, the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's got to this place. They've made an encampment, and he invites Moses to come out. He's going he's to instruct his people, his children, on how to live in a way that honors him. He has done so much for these Israelites, and what do they do to repay him for his graciousness? They build an idol and begin to worship it. God sees us and he says, Moses, sin must be punished. But he also says this in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. But I, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's who I am, Moses. That's who I want you to teach these people I am. In the midst of God's discipline, in the midst of his determination to punish them for their sin, and, and he will punish them for their sin, make no doubt about that. But he also says, in my discipline, I am compassionate and gracious and abounding in love. There's no, there's no tension between God's discipline and his love. Can we just all understand that right now? He is compassionate and gracious. He is just and he is merciful. 
Now, the Bible and human history show us that we constantly mess up. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we kill, we go out of our way to prove to God that we deserve to be punished. And despite this time and time and time again, God says, yes, but I'm compassionate and gracious. In Psalm 103, verse 8 and 10, David writes this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. In fact, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. David wrote the psalm, and David knows something about this. If you know David's story, you know that he sexually assaulted a woman and then murdered her husband. David knows sin, but he also knows God's gracious compassion. He writes a song about this in Psalm 51, 1 and 2, where he prays for God to do this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. And God amazingly and incomprehensibly does that. He shows him grace, just like he does you and I. Our core verse this week is Ephesians 2.8. Paul writes this to the Ephesians. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Grace is the continual story that God tells in us, and grace is the story he tells through us. Now, the story of grace is this. In Jesus, the embodiment and incarnation of God's grace, God once and for all punishes sin fully and finally. In Jesus, God himself bears the sin and the iniquities and the transgressions of his creation and does what David prays he will do. In one act of sacrifice, he blots out our transgressions. He washes away our iniquity and he cleanses us from sin. That's grace. That's our testimony. We have been saved by grace. We've been entrusted to share that grace with others. We are saved by grace. Now, as followers of Jesus, it seems we have always been conflicted about that. In Luke 18, Jesus and his followers are confronted by a blind man crying on the side of the road, begging Jesus to come and help him. And what do his followers do? His followers tell the blind man, shut up. Don't bother Jesus. You don't deserve his attention. Can you imagine so misunderstanding the grace of God that you would actually keep others from experiencing it themselves? That you would refuse to let the broken and the hurting come near to Jesus? Can you imagine? It's not just the broken, however. In Acts we read that uh, even other Christians were making it really hard for new Christians to experience God's grace. In Acts chapter 15, some Jewish converts to Christianity started requiring the Gentile converts to Christianity to follow what were known as the Mosaic Laws. 
Here's how it says it in uh, Acts 15.5. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, what was the law of Moses? Well, this in Hebrew is called the mitzvah. And it's, it's over 600 laws that are found in the Old Testament that, that the Pharisees, the Jewish scribes, found and put down in a simple, easy-to-read list of 613 and some of them are good ones, like this one. Um, in the mitzvot, you're commanded to recognize that there is a God and that we should love and serve him. That's a good law. In the mitzvot, you are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. Have you heard that? That's familiar. Jesus said the same thing. In the mitzvot, you're not to oppress the weak. That's another good law. Jesus said the same thing. But there are hundreds and hundreds of laws about what you could eat and, and how you could eat it and how it must be prepared before it could be eaten. The exact way you should mourn, how you should handle the dead, how you should not handle the dead, how you should bury them, how you should not bury them. How to treat someone with a disease, how to observe the, the holy days, the Sabbath. And Jesus himself, if you remember, was criticized for not being able to keep these laws or, or better... <laughs> refusing to keep all those laws. And still the apostles have to spend time thinking about what these Mosaic laws mean for these new Christians. Remember, Jesus said, listen, I've come to fulfill the law, but this is not how it is done. And yet the apostles are like, ah, what did he really mean by that? And so they, they gather in Jerusalem to sort of sort this out. If you've ever had trouble with other church leaders and trying to figure out why they can't get their heads screwed on straight because of decisions they're making, just look at Acts and you'll, you'll get a whole new sympathy for your current batch of leaders. The apostles themselves had to struggle, had a little bit of a struggle to figure out what grace looked like. Finally, Peter gets up and he says, friends, God used me to take the gospel to the Gentiles and he showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. And then in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, I love this. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. That's a, that's a beautiful echo of our core verse in Ephesians 2.8. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. We have been saved by grace, simply because God is gracious. And we have been entrusted now with that same gospel of grace. Philip Yancey wrote a beautiful book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and in the, he makes this statement. Grace is one of the best quality Christians have to offer but we are not necessarily identified with it for some reason. Hmm. Look at what Peter said. 
He says this, why should we lay a burden on these new Gentile believers that we ourselves could not bear up under? Why should we hold them to a standard that God did not, did not ask? God has shown grace to us. Now we show grace to others. And William Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, the character Othello, is, is given these words to say. He said, how shalt thou hope for mercy, rendering none? Jesus said, if you want to receive mercy, you've got to give mercy. We've been given grace so that we can offer it to others. I have an acquaintance. I don't call him a friend because, honestly, I have not been a good friend to him. But um, he's gone through a lot in the last couple of years. A sin from long ago and damage to people that he loved has caught up with him. And God is in the process of disciplining him and calling him to account for those sins. God disciplines all of us, doesn't he? His grace doesn't mean he doesn't discipline and punish sin. But few of us have to go through the process that he's going through. He's lost friends, he's lost family, and he's even lost his church family. God judges sin. But nowhere does God call us to reject the repentant. In fact, just the opposite. Heaven rejoices when a sinner returns to God. And sadly, the same people who sing about God's amazing grace are oftentimes the people who will cross the street or ignore a phone call just to avoid dealing with someone that they don't like. And that's a tragic, tragic failure on our part because we've been commanded and commissioned to share God's grace with others. Now, I can hear some of you, um, and I can hear you because I hear me. What about accountability? What about the people he hurt? What about restitution? Let, yesterday in Bible reading, I was reading through Jesus at the end of his life, and he's talking about, he's talking about his purpose in coming. And he says this in John 12, 47. He says, I am not the one who judges. I am the one who saves. God judges. I save. I am so thankful that in our society we have systems that, that God has instituted that handle and call to account wrongdoing. We have police. We have law enforcement. We have the judicial system. Many of you are connected to that yourselves. As the church, we have been entrusted with the gospel of grace. As Paul is facing the end of his life and saying goodbye to people that he will never see again, he reminds them of this one thing. He goes, my goal and my purpose in life is to be faithful to the command I received from the Lord, Acts 20, verse 24, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's commission is our commission especially maybe to those who we don't feel like deserve it. Brendan Manning wrote this, grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff 
with all our might to try and find something or someone that it cannot cover. But grace is enough. It's interesting when you read in scriptures that the people who feel most embraced by Jesus are very often the ones that society has rejected, that the rest of us wouldn't give time to. <laughs> Oddly, it seems, the more unrighteous a person was, the more they felt drawn to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I want to be like Jesus. I want to be the kind of person that people are drawn to, not repelled by. I want to be like the father in that story that Jesus told. When we read the story of the prodigal son, we often identify as one of the two sons, either as the, the foolish and wandering son or the, 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 the dutiful but perhaps resentful son. Prodigal is another very interesting word. Like grace, its meaning has not changed over the course of many, 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 many years. But, but the way we use it sort of has. We use it to describe the son. In fact, in your Bibles, you may have that heading, the story of the prodigal son. In the culture, when you say the prodigal son, we all know what we're talking about. It certainly describes the son, but it's also very useful in describing the father. The prodigal father. If you look up prodigal in the, in the dictionary, it says something like this. Prodigal is spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. That fits the, the wasteful son very well. But it also describes the father very well too. Freely and recklessly, he brings his near-do-well son back into the family, not just dressing him up for the part in sandals and, and a new robe, but he puts this ring on his finger, this ring of grace. And in that ring, and with that ring, he entrusts to him responsibility and authority. And it wasn't just the oldest son that witnessed this and thought, what are you doing? The servants who lost co-workers because the fathers need to sell property, income that was lost. Then he throws this party. On top of this, he throws a party. <sighs> what? You've already lost a third of your income on this kid, and now you're going to spend even more? Can you imagine what they were saying down in the kitchens? Wasteful. Reckless. But the father knew his son was worth every penny. And he wanted the neighbors to know it. He wanted his staff to know it. He wanted his family to know it. And he wanted his son to know it. Maybe you've always been a prodigal. 
disappointing yourself, disappointing others. Maybe you've always been dutiful, responsible. People can count on you. Maybe you've identified with both of those sons. But today, as a believer, I want you to put on the father's hat. I want you to put on the father's shoes. I want you to know what it means to be brought into a family and then investing and trusting in someone else, even if they've disappointed you time and time again, to extend reckless and extravagant grace to the undeserving. And then see what happens. Newton wrote this hymn that we all know and love, Amazing Grace. We can probably sing some of it by memory. But I love this verse. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe all the way through that. Grace brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. We have been saved by grace, and we are entrusted with the gospel of grace. As we come to a time of communion, it's good to remember that, isn't it? We're also being healed by grace. Have you thought about that? There were two guys in Christian history. One was named Pelagius, and the other was Augustine. You might have heard of Augustine. He's a pretty big deal in Christian history. We call him a saint now because of what he taught. But the guy named Pelagius is another very interesting guy because he believed that God's grace must be earned in some way. And Augustine said, no, 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 no. Grace is a gift. It cannot be earned. Pelagius was declared a heretic. As I said, Augustine was declared a saint. But that argument right there between the two of them points to a very uncomfortable truth for most of us as believers because on Sundays we can sing the song of Augustine, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But the rest of the week we can act like Pelagius, that somehow we and others must do something to earn the right to receive grace. If not from God, then from us. And that's a destructive dichotomy there. There's a counselor named David Siemens. Roger knows this guy, Christian counselor. He says this, the two major causes of most problems among evangelical Christians are these, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness, and the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. One of our values at Sherwood Oaks is that we want to be the best church for our community. We want to share the gospel of grace. We want to be faithful to that testimony of grace with the spiritually at risk, the physically at risk, the emotionally at risk. We all need grace. Amen? So as we share in communion this morning, I'm going to pray that we receive God's grace and that we are reminded to live it out as well. Let's pray. Father, this morning we stand here recipients of your grace. You have clothed us in a new robe of righteousness. You brought us into your family. 
and you have put a ring on our finger, a ring of responsibility and authority, that we have the ability to bring grace and to speak grace into the world around us. As we take the cup and the bread this morning, remind us again of the grace that we've received through your graciousness. And may this be a meal of commitment that we would be faithful to that commission that you've called us to testify to the grace of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.